This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. Have you ever had an experience that made you question everything you knew about the world? These apocalyptic moments are, of course, frightening, but they can be beautiful as well, often providing a level of insight that would not have been otherwise possible. This week on the Second Story Podcast, it's the end of the world as we know it. From a woman shocked into action by her overtly racist prom, to a man desperately trying to find a name for his firstborn child, Second Story presents Four Stories of Revelation. Julie Ganey is a company member with Second Story and serves as the director of education for the organization. Here she is sharing our first moment of revelation. Last New Year's, my husband Brad and I made this joint resolution for 2009. We would make it a priority to have more sex. Yes. So we made this resolution. You know, one we could actually look forward to because sex is fun. And the more you do it, really, the more you want to, right? And at first, it was great. But then it was February. The least sexy month of the year in Chicago. And the economy was tanking and we were working harder than ever and we fell off a bit. Okay, a lot. But then it's March, a Friday, and I'm scheduled to be out of town on a job all weekend. But as I packed my bag, I'm smiling, whistling even, because I have a plan. An intricately choreographed score I'm about to play out. I spend the afternoon with my five-year-old, Dorothy, cutting out hearts and snowflakes, and then I head upstairs. Soon, my daughter comes up to find me. Why are you taking a bath right now? She asks, poking her head in the door of the bathroom, which is filled with lemony steam. Because I want to. If you go down and practice your piano for a little while, I'll let you watch some Looney Tunes. Really? Okay. And she scrambles down the stairs before I can change my mind. A few moments later, I hear her at the piano in the dining room, singing along with her own playing to a tune called Elephants Are Stomping Down, which sounds exactly like its title. I step out of the tub, drying off, lotioning, feeling delicious and damp. From the top drawer of my dresser, I pull out the most whispery, delicate set of lace lingerie I have. It's lavender, given to me by Brad on an anniversary. I put it on and I turn to survey myself in the full-length mirror in the corner of our bedroom. I look okay. I mean, not perfect, but not tragic either. I mean, everything's still basically where it's supposed to be. At five o'clock, I throw on my robe and I dash downstairs to the kitchen. Dorothy's at the piano, pounding out something that sounds as if it might be titled The Jackhammer. And I ask, uh, honey, are you still practicing? I just like to play what I feel like playing, my own made-up songs. Well, that's great, I say, shaking the goldfish crackers into a bowl. That's improvising, but it's important to learn how to read the notes, too. I glance at the clock. Brad will be home in five minutes. Perfect. The airport cab isn't due for an hour at six. Dorothy begins munching on the goldfish and asks tremulously, can I have a juice box too? And when I say sure, she squeals at her unexpected good fortune. 
I usher her into the living room and I insert the DVD. As I start up the stairs, I say to Dorothy, now, as soon as Daddy comes in, tell him I have a little headache and I'm lying down, okay? She doesn't answer, already entranced by the cartoon, drawn into the senseless, colorful violence of Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. I hate that look, that slack-jawed hypnosis brought on by the flickering screen, and I feel a twinge of guilt. Honey, did you hear me? What are you going to tell Daddy when he comes in? With effort, she pulls herself away and looks at me. That you have a headache and you're lying down. Right. In our room at the top of the stairs, I shrug off my robe and I slip between the fresh sheets I've just put on the bed and I stretch gloriously. Through the window, the afternoon sky is gray and low, but I like how black the bare branches of the maple tree look against it and the bluish light that spills into the room. I recline on the pillows and I drape the blankets around me. It feels luxurious to just lay there. I'm in bed, but I'm not tired. I'm just waiting, waiting for my husband. Soon I hear Brad coming up the porch steps and through the front door. He greets Dorothy as he shrugs off his coat, and I hear her distracted response, and then the creak of the couch as Brad settles beside her. <laughs> A minute later, I can hear them giggling at some cartoon bludgeoning. Dorothy's already forgotten my instruction, apparently, but it's okay. In a minute, Brad will ask where I am, and then she'll remember. And he'll bound upstairs, concerned, solicitous, because truly, he's like that. And he'll say, oh, you have a headache, honey? And I'll say, no, come here. <laughs> and he'll have that look of unexpected good fortune Dorothy just had over the juice box in the kitchen. <clears throat> But not right now. Right now, I'm listening to Dorothy tell Brad all about being the very brilliant student of the week in kindergarten and the letters she got from each one of her classmates, and he begins to read through them aloud one by one. Dorothy, I like you because you are nice and don't be mean to people, and you're funny. Well, that's nice, Dot, he says. And this one's from Matthew, she says, and I hear a page turn. This goes on and on. And Brad comments on every one. That's how he is, too. Something dark inside me twists a little because for me, sometimes the prospect of playing memory match one more time makes me want to stick glass in my eyes. The floorboards creak as Brad crosses to the kitchen for something, and still no announcement from Dorothy and no curiosity from my husband as to where I am. Dear Dorothy, you run fast and you don't fight people. <laughs> Jesus, I think these letters make it sound like she's stuck in a class of brawlers. <laughs> Finally, at 5.20, Brad finishes the last letter and says, why don't you play something on the piano for me, honey? He pauses the Looney Tunes and I hear a shifting on the couch. Now he's lying down. <laughs> What the hell is going on? Does he not wonder where his wife is? Now, I realize, of course, that I could simply get out of bed and descend halfway down the stairs and crook my finger at him and say, psst, come here, but I don't want to. That's not what this is. 
I don't want to get up and throw my ratty, coffee-stained robe over my expensive lingerie. I want to be discovered, found. Dorothy pummels the piano with a reprise of elephants are stomping down, and I lie on my back, rigid and irritated. The clock glares 5.30. Is this where I've landed after 12 years of marriage? When I first met Brad, I was so overcome when I was with him that I couldn't concentrate on what he physically looked like and literally couldn't describe him to friends for the first few weeks we were together. He taught me to dance the waltz, foxtrot, mamba, samba, tango. We danced to music that was improvised from our desire. Moments after our first kiss, Brad had to sit down. It made him so dizzy. And if you told me then that we'd end up here, I never would have believed it. We were hot, madly sexy. And that wouldn't change if we had ten children. Not to mention one non-aggressive kindergartner. <laughs> 5.40. I can hear Brad crunching on chips or something. As Dorothy shows him some paper hearts she's cut out. You know, Dad, a heart isn't really shaped like this. It's shaped like a fist. I find this profound. <laughs> my mood has settled like sludge, and with effort I roll onto my side and tug at the tiny lingerie shorts, which are now incredibly itchy. 546. This is how New Year's resolutions go, I think, always. My clothes laid across a chair in the corner laugh at me. I should just get up and get dressed. Then I hear steps on the stairs, Dorothy's. She sidles onto the bed next to me saying, I wanna snuggle with you. I scoot over and make a little room for her. She notices what I'm wearing and says, ooh, I like your pajamas, mommy. I wrap the sheets more tightly around me. I don't want my five-year-old celebrating my erotic wear. <laughs> and I ask accusingly, did you tell Daddy I had a headache? Um, I think so. Then Brad pokes his head into the room, the bag of chips in his hand. I see a flicker of confusion register on his face as he discovers me lying in bed, and I demand, did she tell you I had a headache? No, you have a headache? No, I don't have a headache. <laughs> well, what's going on? Nothing, nothing is going on. He and his chips cross to the end of the bed and settle there. Aware of Dorothy, who's watching the proceedings with interest, I ask, didn't you think it was curious to come home and find your daughter sitting in front of the television by herself? No, he says cautiously. I know you're leaving soon. I figured you needed time to be up here packing. He reaches out, chip in hand, and pulls the sheet off my shoulder a few inches. But now I see you've been laying up here getting yourself all worked up. I shrug the sheet back up over my shoulder. Since when do you not head straight up to your office and check your email when you get home? Since when do you not say, hello, honey, how was your day when you walk in? I mean for this to sound like actual questions, but it spills across the bed like a stain. I was reading Dorothy's notes. Come on, I can't read your mind. Not from another room. He tosses the uneaten chip back in the bag. 
The clock says 5.57. I have to get dressed. The cab's going to be here in three minutes. God, this is such a waste, he says. I wish you'd just called me. Well, I have to go now. Just relax for a minute. Yeah, just relax, <laughs> says Dorothy. She picks up my hand and starts rubbing it. Give her a hand massage, Dad. That makes her relax. No, I do not have time for a hand massage. I don't want a hand massage. I need you two to get out, please, so I can get dressed and go. Here, Dad, massage your hand like this, Dorothy says, her little fingers rubbing industriously and ineffectually. And he does. Squeezes the fleshy area at the base of my thumb and down to the tip his strong thumbs on my palm and the pads of my fingers, still irritated, not inspired, but playing the notes because he loves me. Love not as a feeling, but as an action. And I unwittingly begin to relax right there where I've landed. The street lights switch on, and when the taxi honks moments later, Brad carries my bag to its trunk while I get dressed, elephants stomping down below. Like a flower Waiting to be Like a light bulb In a dark I'm just sitting here waiting for you. I sat down with Julie at the Second Story office to talk about writing and craft and her experience as a solo show performer in Chicago. Sometimes we, and when I say we, I mean other people as storytellers or myself, we have something we want to say, something we want to write about, or something's happened to us and we're like, I have to tell that story. And once we start putting it down on paper, it becomes evident, maybe not to me, but it becomes evident to the people around me who are hearing it. There's not really enough, maybe, narrative distance on that particular event in their lives. And what I mean, not enough time has passed, and it may not be chronological time, not enough healing has passed, or not enough perspective has been gained on the event that happened to be able to tell it. Sometimes you can tell somebody's not ready to tell a story if they've got a big chip on their shoulder about something. <laughs> You're like, I don't think you've, you were really ready to have perspective on this yet. And I know uh, just this year, um, I was part of the curation process and I had a story I wanted to tell and the more I wrote it, the more I realized what I really wanted to do was rant about something. and it became evident to me, A, in the writing, but then also the first time I started reading part of a draft to the other um, tellers and then my curator. I, I realized from their reaction, oh yeah, this, I'm not ready to tell this. Either there's not a story here or I'm not, I haven't put this in perspective to be able to make any sense about it yet. And so when we're ready to tell stories, even really intimate, um, hard to tell stories, we've been able to put some sort of meaning around them or have some sort of perspective. It may not be the same perspective we're going to have 10 years from now, but it's some sort of perspective. All you have to be really is truthful. Truthful in the moment. 
You're not trying to pull the wool. You're not trying to make people think of you in a certain way. You're not trying to put some image out there. You're just telling the truth. Because in this particular form, being able to sit in the chair and look at an audience of 60 people in that moment and be honest with them about what happened, well, it's terrifying and it's good to do things that are terrifying sometimes. You can find more about Julie Ganey at her website, juliegainey.com. Our next story comes from a brand new Second Story company member, Miss Margaret Marion. Margaret just recently graduated from a master's program at the University of Chicago and was inducted into the Second Story company in August of 2013. With her moment of revelation, Second Story proudly presents Miss Margaret Marion. Six months into my first year of college, I marry my high school sweetheart, and we move from the heavily insulated campus in Hyde Park to 71st Street in Stony Island. I start working as a youth worker in an after-school program, run out of this monster building that's stationed right in the middle of what the kids tell me is the pocket. Can't you see, Miss Margaret? Look at here. They say placing their hand on the Google Maps printout. I landed in Pocket Town, an all-black, all-poor neighborhood that's stitched closed on three sides by the Oakwood Cemetery on the north, the Metro Tracks on the east, and the Chicago Skyway slashing through its southwest. It didn't really look much like a pocket. Uh, Miss Margaret, the kids explain that it's rather that small, triangular-shaped pocket that fits inside your larger pocket. So you always have an extra quarter just in case someone gets on the bus without one. Or so you have a place to put the now and later the candy lady gives you after school. Playing with the kids, walking them home, biking the length of the neighborhood with the other youth workers. I find the beautiful and not so beautiful things that fill Pocket Town. Lots of fuzzy things, like yellow daffodil weeds growing in patches around broken homes, and cotton candy ice cream cones passed out in the dozens by big brothers with stacked dollar bills wadded in rubber bands. And sharp things, too, like smashed liquor bottles scattered in mosaic on the sidewalk, and a three-way intersection that annually collects a mound of teddy bears and flowers. Also in this pocket is the youth center, this giant, high-tech-looking, see-through building with red, white, and blue panels contrasting the black and gray t-shirts of the corner boys. I did some Googling. The center was built by Gary Comer, the multimillionaire owner of Land's Inn. Comer grew up in the pocket back in the 1920s when it was Greater Grand Crossing and it was populated by white moms who hung white laundry while white preschoolers played hopscotch in yards enclosed by white picket fences. The Great Depression hit, the Second Great Migration, the New Deal, the War on Drugs, and Greater Grand Crossing became Pocket Town. They say that one day, Comer walked into his old elementary school, now labeled a national dropout factory, and bought 30 computers on the spot. He proceeded to stuff the pocket with over $80 million, starting the most expensive community reform project in the Midwest. He tore down abandoned properties, built new houses, funded a library, hired a world-famous architect to build the youth center, equipped with the full-size gym, a fitness center, professional-grade studios for art, dance, and music, a state-of-the-art cafeteria from the likes of Oprah's Kitchen. 
Comer topped it all off with the 80-foot tall LED sign brandishing his name 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The Gary Comer Youth Center is staged as a promising buffer against the pocket's sharper confines, a fortress against the hellfire of street gangs. But, and you knew it was gonna be a but. <laughs> in one of the poorest and most dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago, Comer built his youth center out of glass. Okay. So there I am, little old me, teaching crochet and stress management to a group of elementary <laughs> school kids. And it's 77 degrees in May, the first taste of summer after five months of winter. We're in this room walled on three sides by floor to ceiling glass windows. And I hear this message, don't dismiss, hold your kids, stay calm. My coworker and friend Tasha is serious as she motions for me through the window wall. The kids prepare their best we're being good smiles in anticipation for the random treats Tasha's known for. But Tasha only smiles faintly at them as she pulls me into the hallway and closes the door. Someone, a known gang member, had just come into the center and told the front desk that there was going to be a shootout. He said not to let our kids out, wait here. Without waiting for questions, Tasha turned to inform the other instructors, wait here. I re-enter the room, a mess now with yarn strewn all over the table and little fuzzballs starting to take root in the carpet. Nine-year-old Trina helps seven-year-old Lene try on a half-crocheted skirt, and the twins camping under the table are having a fairly serious debate about they have, how they have both crocheted 30 chains, but mine is still longer than yours. <laughs> Such grown-up little people. The kids are hungry, itching to run downstairs and gobble their free dinner, served and prepared by the teenagers with fresh produce from the award-winning rooftop garden. They'll practically inhale the turkey burger and sweet potato fries and jet outside to enjoy the sunlight before the streetlights come on. But they aren't going anywhere anytime too soon, and I'll have to tell them why. Wait here. Where had I heard that before? I hadn't been older, too much older than Trina or Lene, first or second grade, attending a public school in Detroit. We were at recess, running and jumping and doing what kids do when you're in first or in second grade and at recess. I was helping a friend lace her half-muddied shoes, and the teachers on recess duty had leaned against the building and they were flicking cigarettes. I had just risen from kneeling when the shots were fired. A gold-rimmed car came speeding down the street. A teacher flew towards me, pushed me down to the ground. Wait here, she said, and she ran to meet the smaller kids. With my chin pressed into the dirt, I scanned the playground. Some kids had instinctively dropped down. Others stood frozen in fear. Wait here didn't make a lick of sense when all I wanted to do was get up and run. Miss Margaret. What Miss Tasha say? Lene stands with her hands on her hips, snapping me back into the room. Ain't it time to go? Trina's right behind her, the half-knitted skirt balled in her fists. Right, I'm the adult in this situation. I move coolly to the radio, pretending it's all good, hit play, and the kids know the drill. Michael Jackson's I'm Bad starts, and the kids dance while they clean, racing to finish before that last note. The Nang and Trina start rolling yarn and collecting hooks. The twins get on all fours and to, to uproot the fuzzballs from the carpet. I move among them, 
looking through the tall glass window walls, down a floor into the empty cafeteria, and out onto the quiet street. We all know these window walls aren't bulletproof. The drill team proved it when they had completely shattered one with a flagpole last January. <laughs> Michael Jackson hit that last note flawlessly like always. The kids race to line up at the door, book bags and jackets hanging over their arms. They look at me expectantly, fall quiet, try to stand up all straight and tall, and I take a step towards the door. I halt when I hear a giggle, dart my eyes around like I'm scanning for the who did that. And when they're silent, I walk two steps closer. One kid breaks out in laughter, and I freeze again, mid-step, and the laughter becomes contagious. Playing this game, I buy myself time with the currency of laughter. The kids compose themselves, and I'm forced to keep my end of the bargain. I open the door. Good job, kids. Keep silent. Follow me. I assume the front of the line and tiptoe while they copy me with silent, secret smiles, two doors down to a small office. The kids pile in, amused but confused, and I close the door behind us. We have to wait here. I feel safer. This office is in the inner rectangle of the building. All four walls are just that, walls, not windows. And the only window in the room looks internally into the gymnasium of floor below. Below, I'm sorry. Huh? What? Miss Margaret, this isn't funny anymore. I'm ready to go home. I can't let you leave right now, sweetie. We have to wait, make sure it's safe. I met with more whining, and then there's a tap at the door, and in walks like 12 other kids, fifth and sixth graders. <laughs> Tasha ducks her head in. We're still waiting on lockdown. It's hot, we're hungry, and we're just supposed to wait. The fifth and sixth graders aren't in the room 10 seconds before one of them blurts out that there's going to be a shooting. Man, now I want to mess with me. I'll go get my gat. You ain't got no gat. The kids laugh, and for a split second, the air is light. The little kids and the older kids sit restlessly, missing their free dinner, fidgeting, twisting, talking. We can't keep them forever. And even if we get them out of Crossfire today, what about tomorrow? What about the days that'll follow? The days that followed my first shooting, we still had recess, same time, same park. Except our games had changed. We run around until someone yells rat tat tat and then we fall into the ground in uncontrollable laughter. The game evolved from everyone falling to the ground immediately to these exaggerated Hollywood fallouts. The boys made their whole bodies riddle through with bullets vibrating from their shoulders to their fingertips and then they fall down in slow motion and pretend to die with their eyes wide open. Or, if you were a girl, you died cute-like with your legs perfectly straight and your skirt over your knees and your eyes princess closed. You lay a hand fancy-like across your forehead and you hold a fake rose across your heart. Through narrative pretend play, we made sense of our intense fear and laughed in the uncertainty of our safety. I'm mortified as the sixth graders talk about their gats that I can't be too sure are pretend or not. I feel this heavy obligation to perform a teaching moment, but I'm speechless. I just listen. The kids tell stories about the supposed shootout, stories mutually informed by myth, gossip, and lived experience. 
By the time Tasha finally opens the door and tells them to hurry home, the kids have come up with the full who, what, when, where, and why of the situation. Apparently, one of the younger kids' teenage brothers had been seen on Cottage Grove with a slick haircut and some fresh Air Jordans. And the bosses had said he needed to pay his dues. You know, Miss Margaret, his dues. The kids pour out of the room and race down the stairs. Tasha and I follow them outside, unchain our bikes from the gate as we watch them chase each other home. Tasha notes how quiet it is as we ride together down the middle of the street. Our bikes' reflectors illuminate flickers of broken glass, the pieces that in turn reflect the blues and reds of the 80-foot-tall Gary Comer marquee receding behind us. I lean back in my seat as we pass the teddy bears and flowers at the intersection, waving to us in the cool evening breeze. There is no shootout today. There'll be no breaking news tonight. Just us, our story, cycling through the streets of Pocket Town. That was Margaret Marion. I met with Margaret at a Northside Starbucks to discuss why she loves Chicago and how Second Story parallels with her brand new job as a high school social worker. Especially when you're that young, right? Your main question when something bad happens is, why me? Why did this happen to me? Why is this going on in my life, right? And so what do we do? We create the story of why. You know, we put the pieces together. We try to make sense of the puzzle, and then out of that becomes a story, right? And so telling the story just in and of itself, without any intervention, just telling the story is, is cathartic in itself. The point is, it's something that we do naturally, something that we've been doing since the beginning of the time, and the reason why we do it is because it has a natural healing power. There are, I mean, we get our voices heard. We figure out what's going on in our lives. We have no clue. You could be in this strange world with these strange people. Very disparate events. Stories and art help us put them together and help them make sense. And then we can communicate that to other people. So art is this social invention, right? And it, and it emerges because we are social beings. Oh, yes. So there's Youth Speaks, Young Chicago Authors, L-Tab, which is louder than a bomb, Brave New Voices in Chicago this summer. I mean, amazing International Slam Poetry Festival. I mean, these kids have mixed together rant with catharsis, with poetry, with theater, um, and they just put together this, this dynamic interactive performance where you could just literally feel the hearts of the crowd just lifting over each other and mending and molding and melting into each other and then raining back down in pretty sparkles. I mean, it's wonderful. It's freaking awesome. Our third story today comes from Koya Pass. She's an avid consumer of poetry, performance, and lip gloss. With our third moment of revelation, Second Story proudly presents Miss Koya Pass. When I said I wanted to clock Brie Lander in her stupid, arrogant face, I meant it rhetorically. The same way I often say I would like to puke on Rush Limbaugh. Actual conflict makes me exceedingly uncomfortable in a heart-beating, stomach-turning, breaking out into hives way, so it is for sure, for absolute, that no matter how much I wanted to punch Brie Lander, to clock her in her face, I would never, ever, 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 ever have done it. And I thought this was something my friends understood about me. 
that underneath my combat boots and heavy eyeliner, despite a love of hip-hop and punk rock, despite a propensity to shout, fuck the man and fuck the patriarchy too, in the middle of class discussion, I was essentially a peaceful teenager, a vegan Quaker who had never, not then and not now, ever been in a fist fight in my life. But not five minutes after I told my friend Elizabeth privately in a room with a closed door that I wished I could clock Brie in her stupid, arrogant face, I walked out into the living room of the beach house I was renting with five other recent graduates of my prep school to find an unforgiving tribunal. Brie was sitting on the sofa, curled up in a little ball, pretending to be scared while Kim patted her on the back. Jenny and Allison crossed their arms when I came in, shaking their blonde perms in disapproving unison. Were you just plotting to jump Brie? Kim asked. No, I answered. And it was the truth. She heard you, Allison said. I heard you, said Brie with her stupid, arrogant face. (laughs) Jump you? Like, wait for you in the bathroom with my gang and beat you down in the shower? See, she said, as Allison and Kim gasped. I was frustrated. That had so obviously been a joke. Guys, I said, trying to make my case with as much honesty as possible. I wasn't making plans to jump her. I just said I wished I could clock her in the face. (laughs) This didn't help at all. There was a lot of shouting, some tears, a slam door, another slam door, and ultimately the suggestion that I should leave. So I left shoving all my black beach clothes into a black backpack and heading out into the parking lot to sit miserably on the hood of my car. This wasn't at all how I had planned to celebrate my graduation from high school, fighting with my friends, unsure where I was going to sleep that night. But things had really gone downhill in the past two months. Not only were my parents going through a vicious divorce, the kind where forced family time dinners turned into free-for-alls with dishes flying, but I'd also been tricked into being head of prom committee. This might not seem like the kind of problem that paled in comparison to bail one of my parents out of jail for writing cunt of the month on the other's car, but it wasn't. I did not identify as a prom kind of teenager. I dreamed of having the kind of friends who listened to Bikini Kill and pierced their noses. But those kinds of kids didn't exist at my school, which had a graduating class of 40 and a total population of less than 500, including third graders. So instead, I was friends with Bree. Brie was petite and well-dressed in the most perfectly average way, not a hair in her shoulder-length bob out of place. She had the kind of confidence pretty rich girls with attractive rich parents often exude, and next to her, I always felt awkward, a wannabe riot girl in braces. Beach week, like prom committee, like most of the stupid things I did that year, had been her idea. It'll be fun, she'd say, as if that was that. And it always was. Prom committee did not go well. 
I might have been the official head of prom, but Brie was running a ghost regime. She freaked out when I booked a ballroom in a Howard Johnson's without telling her and insisted we could not have a reggae-themed prom. Uh, but that's what the people want, I told her. I'd taken a survey of our graduating class and asked what kind of music they wanted to hear at prom. Reggae was the almost unanimous answer. Almost. No, said Brie. Just no. <laughs> Maybe we'll find a compromise? But a week later, I heard from Elizabeth that Brie had booked the DJ herself. Does the DJ play reggae music? I asked Brie when I saw her. Sure, she said. He has red, red wine. <laughs> she smiled brightly and tilted her head to the side, daring me to argue with her. I didn't. I was worried about other things, like who I was going to take to prom. I didn't have a boyfriend and had recently alienated most of the boys in my class by inadvertently accusing them all of being date rapists. <laughs> The only boy at my school I kind of liked was Tyler Benson. He was cute, taller than me, and generally inoffensive. I spent two weeks, trying to work, two weeks trying to work up the nerve to ask him to prom. And then, one afternoon, I was driving Brie home after school, and she told me she had a big announcement. I've decided who I'm going to go to prom with. Tyler Benson! I got a bad, hivey feeling. Oh, did he ask you? No, but I'm sure he'll say yes. Oh, okay. Are you mad? I thought maybe you were going to ask him, but you haven't. I was, I said, but you haven't. <laughs> Look, let's sleep on this and talk about it in the morning. Okay, I said, like a sucker. Sure enough, the next day, Kim and Allison ran up to me, giddy with exciting gossip. Did you hear Tyler ask Bree to the prom? He did, I asked. He did? Well, kind of. She asked him, but we all know he would have asked her eventually. <laughs> I was depressed. Kim and Jenny and Allison and Elizabeth and Brie talked about nothing but prom and beach week and prom and beach week and prom and beach week. I didn't want to do either, but had already paid for both. Whoa, 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 my friend Mike said one afternoon while I was tutoring him in algebra. Didn't you say prom was like a something-something teen movies? A capitalist trap romanticized by teen movies from the 80s, I clarified. <laughs> yeah, that. Why do you even want to go? Because I'm head of the stupid prom committee, I told him. It's embarrassing to not have a date. Mike was super cute, but pretty much the dumbest person I'd ever met in my life. We'd started hanging out when he'd come to me with an animal problem. So, you're a vegan, right? He'd ask one day out of nowhere. Yeah? Okay, so I need some advice. The other day I ran over a possum with my car and it wasn't dead and I didn't know what to do so I beat it to death with a tire iron. <laughs> I stared at him for a long time. 
what kind of advice do you need? <laughs> I need to know if it was the right thing to do or what. That's moronic, I told him. But weirdly, after that, we were friends. I'll take you to prom, he offered. Don't you already have a date, I asked. <laughs> sure, but she's a junior. I'll never see her again after next week anyway. <laughs> On prom night, I got ready at my friend Kristen's house to preempt an argument between my parents as to whose house I should get ready in. Her date picked her up first, and they waited around awkwardly for about 20 minutes before heading out. I'm sure Mike will be here any minute, Kristen assured me, and glided out, leaving me sitting on the sofa next to her parents. We sat there, and sat there, and sat there, in silence. An hour later, Mike knocked on the door. I stared at him. So I think I'm late, he said apologetically. I remembered at the last minute that you're allergic to cats, so I had to vacuum the cat hair off of my suit. It's harder than you think. <laughs> you are so stupid, I said. I know, he answered cheerfully, <laughs> opening his car door. I climbed in, and my dress, a sleek black vintage number, ripped at the armpits. Do you need to fix that, Mike asked. No. I said miserably, wishing I believed in shaving my armpits. At prom, Brie looked like she'd been cut out of Seventeen magazine. <laughs> nice dress, she sneered. I rolled my eyes, busy fending off all of my classmates wanting to know why the DJ kept playing red, red wine. <sighs> Brie Lander, I'd say. Brie Lander. One week later, I found myself sitting with Elizabeth on the hood of my blue Ford Taurus. She'd been asked to leave the beach house, too. We looked out over the ocean, surrounded by drunken graduates. Woo! They'd scream as they ran by, sloshing drinks out of poorly hidden bottles. So what do you want to do? Elizabeth asked. I don't know. Just then, Tyler pulled up in his car. Koya Paz, he said with a big smile. I heard you threatened to clock Brie Lander. He high-fived me. Don't tell Brie I did that, he said, and sauntered inside. I was confused, but Liz was elated. I know, let's go see the boys. So we did. We knocked on the door of the dingy motel room where 12 of the guys in our graduating class were staying. Can we stay here? Koya threatened to clock Brie Lander. The guys all cheered. Better her than one of us, they said. Come on in. We're doing beer bongs in the bathroom. You are so badass, Koya, Mike said. Me? I answered. Yeah, you're all tough and shit. Like, I'll punch you in the face if you fuck with me. Bam! Really? I thought about that night. The whole end-of-school situation, how I always felt scared to say no, to stand up for myself. How I always smelled small and out of place. But they didn't know that. Everyone at my school thought maybe, just maybe, I would punch someone in the face if they crossed me. The next morning, Liz and I woke up in the room's only bed. The pillows were musty and beer-soaked, and all of the guys were asleep on the floor. Come on, I told Liz. 
Let's go back to our rental. Really? Bree will have a fit. Good. We walked into four surprised faces. What are you doing here? Bree asked. I stared her down. My heart was beating fast, and I could feel my skin starting to itch, but I made myself speak in a level voice. Do you want to give us our money back for this rental? No. Then I think I'm staying in the room I paid for. Can I have this beer? I grabbed it without waiting for an answer and headed to my room, lay down on my bed, and smiled. I was the kind of girl who would never, ever, ever punch Brie Lander in their stupid, arrogant face. But that didn't matter. Either she thought I was, or she was lying. And either way, I was pretty sure. Game, set, match, I win. That was Koya Pass. Koya is an acclaimed writer and theatrical innovator in Chicago and was recently named the artistic director of Free Street Theater. We chatted over a mug of green tea at a noisy coffee shop on Milwaukee Avenue to discuss her unique ensemble-based approach to creating theater. I came here because I wanted to make plays. Um, I identify as a director-developer. I'm not a playwright in the sense that I sit down um, in an empty room and write a script. I get a group of people together and facilitate a process whereby we create the piece together. Sometimes it's called devising, but I think that, that word doesn't really... I prefer ensemble created. You know, I've spent my entire life actually working with um, people who are not theatrical professionals to make theater. I just really believe that theater is something that can matter to a lot of different people. But unlike a lot of forms of practice, you can't do it by yourself. I mean, you could paint. If you were going to want to dabble in painting, you could paint at home or you could play your guitar at home. You just simply cannot do theater or performance by yourself. My practice is really to uh, be open to what it, whatever is happening in the room. I don't come in with a huge plan. You know, I, I come in with an idea, uh, but I, I really try to let whoever's in the room have as much influence as possible. Um, but it's really a question of thinking about how much work writers put into their writing and asking them to pay that same kind of attention to the performance. So the thing that makes me really crazy is that sometimes, you know, you go to an open mic or, um, you know, some other kind of, you know, liter reading of a literature event, and the, the reader, the poet, the writer just kind of blows right through everything. You know, they read it in a monotone, they read it at the same pace, and I think, I know you agonized over where to put a comma, where to put a line break, where to put a dash. Like, how do you perform the comma? Everyone makes fun of me where I'm like, think about performing the comma. That's a pause, but not a stop, you know? Um, what does it mean to break there? What kind of pace are you trying to create for the writer? That's what you're trying to do as the performer, too. The way that a director, different than somebody who is maybe helping you as a, when, an editor of writing, a director can really look and see when you don't need words at all. You know, you can take out these whole sentences because you're saying that with your face. So trust the performance as well as the writing. For more information about Koya and her work, visit her website at koyapas.com. The final story of our podcast comes from Senyo Adore. An electrical engineer by day, poet and writer by night. Second story is proud to present Mr. Senyo Adore. 
There was only one name I ever really considered when I learned my girlfriend and I were having a baby boy. Even still, when the news that we were expecting first broke, friends and family would file in from all over with name ideas. There were some fine African names, some fine American names, and then there were the names I wouldn't wish on my own mortal enemy. When the little guy finally arrived, our family began planning a naming ceremony, which is customary for Ghanaians. This is a large affair that enlists a combination of tribal rituals and Christian prayer in welcoming a newborn into the world. The event was capped by the community griot, in this case, my uncle, introducing the baby to the ancestors by his full name, complete, completing his order of spiritual protection. And just like that, our little bundle of joy was ushered into the world by a community speaking ancestral blessings into the wind, the same utterings that protected me as I carried my name from childhood to manhood. I came to Chicago at age eight from the safety of my grandparents' compound in Ghana. I had enough confidence and drive in my little frame to start a single-engine Cessna. But when I walked into Mrs. Abrams' third grade classroom, I immediately felt two disadvantages. One, it was the first day for me, but the first day back from Christmas vacation for everyone else. Two, when Mrs. Abrams butchered the pronunciation of my name, the Snickers in the room informed me that it was going to be a long day. <laughs> so, how do you pronounce this? Uh, Senio Brown? Senio? Sanyo Brown. Oh, it's like the TV, right? Sanyo Brown? Uh, uh, no, ma'am. It's Senyo with an E, not an A. It's really easy. <laughs> oh. Gosh, are you sure you don't want us to call you something else? Uh, y y yes, ma'am. That's my name. Oh, you don't have to call me ma'am. Just call me Mrs. Abrams, honey. And I thought to myself, well, just call me Senyo. <laughs> but I was too yellow to take things that far. For the first time, I experienced my name bring about something other than enchantment into a room. I was worlds away from Ghana. I wasn't afforded the notification of a free fall. It just felt like I woke up and went to school one day and suddenly splat. I was nobody. Now, my dad usually brought home Chinese food after work, especially when he was in a good mood. The menu was always Szechuan chicken over plain white rice with two egg rolls each. The soy and the duck sauce had to be rationed judiciously. He with a bottle of Heineken and I with a glass full of Hawaiian punch. Neither of us ever said a word until we made it to the egg rolls. So how was it at school today? Uh, I can't go there anymore. Oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> the teacher is acting like she can't say my name right. I mean, she teaches language arts. <laughs> Everyone laughs at me, and I don't want to be the class joke. Oh, so what? Shall we move our things and take our things and move? 
They'll learn your name. Everyone needs time. That's how things are, no matter where you are. Uh, Ghana was better. America just isn't right. Oh, my friend, do you want to make a list of all the things that aren't right in this world? <laughs> you have to struggle small here and there. That's how things are. That's how you grow. You have to fight just to be yourself sometimes. So the dinner table became our basic training grounds. We would war at home, and then I would go out and war in the world. My first fights on America's playgrounds were started in defense of the magic in my name. Brad Alfers, a nine-year-old truckload of a boy. Young Mr. Alfers had more freckles than open real estate on his rounded face, 20 pounds heavier and three inches taller than everyone in our fourth grade class. He casted shadow and influence over every conflict, whether it's his score to settle or not. What kind of sports do they play in your country? Brad asked me one day. Excuse me? Sports, you know, football, basketball, hockey. Sports? Football. I think you people call it soccer. You people? That's because it is soccer. I, I've never seen you around here. What's, what's your name anyway? Senyo. Huh? <laughs> what kind of name is that? A strong one. Well, you need a nickname. Senyo is five letters long. <laughs> that's so weird. Well, that's my name. It's not my fault you have a weird name, Jungle Boy. And in these routine exchanges, Jungle Boy became interchangeable with Tarzan, which is interchangeable with Baboon Lover, which was interchangeable with African Booty Scratcher. And with each insult, I was losing resolve, the key to the magic in my name. We were a full calendar year from my arrival in America, making me 10. I was quickly beginning to pick up the mechanics of life in the US when I was dealt a substantial blow. My mother used to have a way of calling my name that would voodoo a smile into my heart. Senor. You'll see. We'll be back. People leave on airplanes, and sometimes your identity goes with them. The night before, my mother sat me down and assured me divorce didn't mean that she loved me any less. That in this country, people got divorces all the time. To remember that distance could never change the fact that we were a family. And besides, she and my younger brother would be back from Ghana in no time. I was still young then and felt her sincerity, but the voodoo was not as potent on that day. Some promises just aren't material enough to run your fingers through. So I began the process of distancing myself. I went about stacking emotional blocks around myself until I, was ready to make more sense of my new reality and what it meant for an identity that was already under siege. The name I use today, Senyo Adore, is the surname my father used post-divorce, a change from the original brown my mother continues to wear as a title until this day. I remember asking my dad if I could have an American name like the rest of my cousins, Daniel, Carl, Agnes, Crystal, something. 
But he'd look at me as if there was something on my face, like, shit. <laughs> what you want a goddamn name like that for? Your name used to be Cephas Brown, now it's Kwasi Adore. I changed it because of the system here. Even the way they hire for work is prejudice. You can't fill out those damn applications with any African name. No one will give you a chance. You show up to an interview with a difficult name, an accent, and you see what will happen. You can just forget it. The plan was always to go back to our door, but I did what I had to do to get us to this point. My friend, you just have to keep fighting. Dad, I, I, hey, am I your classmate? Why am I explaining myself to you? Yeah, senor, period. And besides, last time I checked, I was the one working, going up and down to the city in this capsule we can eat. When you get a job and you can feed yourself and your family, you can call yourself Muhammad Ali. I don't care. <laughs> the funny thing was, years after that conversation with my old man, I would bury myself in the lives of both Muhammad Ali and his mentor, Malcolm X. It was late summer, 2001. I was 18, a year removed from high school graduation. I was in the lower level of Union Station when I slid back the first page of Alex Haley's autobiography of Malcolm X. I was headed to Carbondale for an early entry program for my freshman year in college. I was equipped with an army duffel bag full of balled up laundry, an iPod, an economy pack of chicken flavored ramen noodles, a bottle of Louisiana hot sauce and the autobiography of Malcolm X, a freshman year survival pack indeed. Now a good author makes a reader see pieces of himself in the protagonist. Alex Haley threw spells on me, allowing me to view the integrity of my name and struggle with the same severity that Malcolm did his own. Hell, I was Malcolm for that five and a half hour train ride. I went along as he lost himself, reclaimed himself, and renamed himself in the midst of an America that killed his father for standing up bravely to injustice. And though I didn't have a fraction of that cruelty to overcome, I fed off of Malcolm's energy and resolved to never allow anyone to make me feel low about who I was. With each page I read, I was getting stronger. I was two years out of college, back in Chicago, looking on carefully during our son's naming ceremony. He was passed from auntie to auntie for kisses and good quality rocking time. As is tradition, the community welcomed our little one the same way they had all the children in our family. We were surrounded by our most trusted friends and family in my father's cramped two-bedroom apartment, petitioning our ancestors to welcome and protect him in the physical world as well as in the realms unseen. My uncle wrapped our son in kente cloth and lifted him to the sky as the priest beside him offered perfectly good vodka to the earth for libation. It was definitely one of those Lion King moments. <laughs> we decided to arm him with Senyo, making him a junior. The direct translation is God is good in Ewe, the language my family carries on their souls. He officially introduced Junior to the ancestors as Senyo Kwame Fair Adore.
The air was electric, almost to the touch. A surge of magic ran through my body. The spell of this wondrous name I share with my son was now taking its effect. In the days when the name was more like a weight, felt miles behind me. This was now a patent of nobility, and I was ready to claim, live, and share in the magic of Senyo Adore. Thank you. That was Senyo Adore. You can follow him on Twitter at Senyo underscore Twilight. Revelations come in all shapes and sizes, from the mildly life-changing to the massively world-shattering. But your world doesn't end. The sun still rises the next morning. You still wake up and put your shoes on. But the way you notice the sun is altered. The direction you walk in those shoes forever changed. This is Second Story. Second Story is more than just a podcast. It's a live story power experience. Join us for our next performance at Webster's Wine Bar in Lincoln Park on October 13th and 14th. The theme of the evening is Cut and Run, Stories of Escape. For more information and for tickets, you can visit our website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. Second Story podcasts are brought to you by the City Arts Program, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Chicago Community Foundation, a part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Work Fund. The four stories on this podcast were all curated by Ms. Deb Lewis with performance direction from Megan Schuckman. The show was produced by Katie Pryor with a sound design from Nick Kawahara. Second Story podcasts are produced by Eric Hazen and Ozzy Totten with a special thanks from Sherry Pentamone and C.P. Chang. I'm Ozzy Totten. Thanks for listening. This is Second Story. <laughs>